Hello and welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times. I'm Oscar Boyd and I hope all of you listening in Japan have had an absolutely lovely silver week. Thank you as always for joining me on this auditory quest to understand Japan just a little better. Because of the four-day weekend, we've got an irregular episode this week. Let's call it a bonus episode. And it follows on from episode 57, in which we talked with Matt Alt all about his new book, Pure Invention, How Japan's Pop Culture Conquered the World. If you haven't listened to episode 57, then the real question is, why not? Matt is a great speaker, and his book goes fully subterranean on some of Japan's most important cultural exports over the last 70 years. So today we're going to hear an excerpt from chapter 5 of Pure Invention, titled Plugging In and Dropping Out, read by Mr. Matt Alt himself. The chapter is all about the invention of the Walkman and how the device changed the music listening landscape forever with its back pocket size and daringly small headphones. We join in the middle third of the chapter with Matt describing a conversation between the two co-founders of Sony, Akio Morita and Masaru Ibuka, a conversation that would lead to the invention of that iconic portable music player. Here's Matt Old. The official story is that the Walkman emerged out of a conversation between Ibuka and Morita in early 1979. Quote, the idea took shape when Ibuka came into my office one day with one of our portable stereo tape recorders and a pair of our standard-sized headphones, wrote Morita in his memoirs. I asked him what he was doing, and then he explained, I like to listen to music, but I don't want to disturb others. I can't sit there by my stereo all day. This is my solution. I take my music with me, but it's too heavy. Ibuka's gadget of choice was then Sony's smallest tape deck, the TC-D5 Field Recorder. Intended for recording industry professionals, it was the size of a box of breakfast cereal and weighed close to five pounds, even without batteries, necessitating the use of a heavy nylon carrying strap. Morita recalled a recent visit to the United States, where he saw, or more to the point heard, a new phenomenon gripping New York City. The boombox, the street name for the battery-powered portable tape decks produced by his own and rival firms. Even larger than the TC-D5, some were easily more than double its size. They were affordable and very, very loud. In the late 70s, they had developed an unexpected following among inner-city youth, Carried into the streets, perched on a shoulder, or positioned on a corner to spark a breakdancing battle, they provided a new urban sonic backdrop designed to provoke. Back then, the black man wasn't being heard in society, wrote the hip-hop historian Adisa Banjoko. When he's got his boombox in his hand, you're forced to hear him. Critics disparage them as ghetto blasters, but Morita put two and two together. People wanted to take their music with them, and so he directed his staff to prepare a prototype of a miniature stereo cassette player. In fact, the story is more nuanced. According to several sources inside the company, a prototype already existed, constructed by an unnamed young Sony engineer as a playful experiment. Ibuka's request simply rekindled this whimsical personal project back to life. 
The tape recorder division quickly whipped up a more polished sample from an existing product called the Pressman. Intended for journalists to record interviews and press conferences onto cassette tapes, the Pressman played back monaural sound over a single tiny internal speaker. Apollo astronauts had carried a similar, earlier Sony model with them to record notes on the moon missions. Modifying it to play back two-channel stereo music over a pair of headphones required gutting nearly every feature inessential to playing back music. Out went the internal speaker and the recording function. This caused a great deal of consternation within the ranks. Despite Ibuka and Morita's enthusiasm, the concept upended decades of conventional wisdom. It was a tape deck that couldn't record, a portable listening device without a speaker, and even more startling, a piece of consumer gear that actually obligated users to wear headphones. You know who wore headphones in 1979? Telegraph operators wore headphones. Submarine sonar operators wore headphones. Airplane pilots wore headphones. Nobody else, save a few crazed hi-fi nerds did, and those obsessive techies weren't exactly trendsetters. Not yet, anyway. Further complicating things was an unfortunate social prejudice against the handicapped. Anything you put in your ears to hear with, headphones included, was associated with impaired hearing or deafness in Japan. Perhaps this was true abroad, too. A 1960 ad for a Zenith transistor radio in Life magazine advertised its private listening attachment rather than using earpiece or earphone. As a result, nobody at Sony was willing to sign off on the gadget, and the fact that neither Ibuka nor Morita pushed it through testifies to their own ambivalence on the matter. Then again, you have to remember the state of the art in headphones at the time. They were complicated plastic and rubber contraptions that resembled earmuffs more than audio gear. If you were lucky, each ear-swallowing cup was the size of a hockey puck. If you were unlucky, they were closer to the size of a softball cut in half. Or maybe they just felt that way. The average set tipped the scales at 400 grams, or around a pound. A pair of wireless AirPods weigh just 4 grams each. This was fine if you were lounging around mission control, but they defeated the purpose of creating a truly portable stereo system. Yet the headphones were key to the Enterprise. They were the Enterprise, even more than the Walkman was. Tape decks had continued to shrink in size. The TC-D5 field recorder and the Pressman were proof of that. But for the most part, headphones had remained defiantly gargantuan. Sorry to interrupt, but a quick break from Matt's alt for me to do some housekeeping notes. If you would like email notifications when new episodes of Deep Dive are released, then join our mailing list. A link is in the episode notes. You can also get in touch with us directly by following our Twitter at Japan Deep Dive or me at OMH Boyd. Links to all of those will be in the episode notes. Finally, if you're a fan of Deep Dive, please do take a moment to rate and review it on your favourite podcasting app. All reviews help others to discover the show. Thanks so much to all of you who've reviewed it so far. Now back to Matt and the story of the Walkman.
In the mid-70s, headphones were such a niche business that statistics are scarce. Today, headphones represent a $10 billion a year industry, far bigger than music players themselves iPod sales have dwindled to the point that Apple stopped reporting their sales figures in 2014. Yet that same year, they purchased the headphone company Beats by Dre for $3.2 billion. At the time, the single largest corporate acquisition in Apple's history. Ironically, Beats by Dre rose to fame by successfully convincing young consumers that they wanted bulbous 70s-style headsets of the sort preferred by DJs, instead of cutting-edge earbuds. So the Walkman's success depended on pairing the portable cassette player with an equally portable way of listening to it. As it turned out, another Sony division already had a pair of lightweight headphones in the works. Unlike standard models, they were open-air, sitting atop the ears on pads of colorful foam rather than engulfing them in plastic and rubber. They were simpler and much cheaper to produce than the standard models. And best of all was their weight, just 50 grams, an eighth of a standard set. The pairing of these tiny earphones with the cassette deck was the turning point for the product, a sudden jump from dream to reality. I was shocked the first time I heard it, recalled the Sony designer Yasuo Kuroki. How on earth was something this small putting out such powerful sound? Everyone knows what headphones sound like today, but at the time, you couldn't even imagine it. And then suddenly, Beethoven's fifth is hammering between your ears. The first production model, officially called the TPS-L2, was a strange beast by modern portable listening standards. Roughly the dimensions of a paperback book, It was significantly larger than even the old TR-63 transistor radio. There was no way it would fit in a pocket. Instead, users had to clip it to a belt or waistband, using an included faux leather holster accessory. Even more surprisingly, it was intended both for solo listening and for use by two people, with ports for two sets of headphones. This last specification came at the request of Morita himself, who had discovered something we take for granted today. It was impossible to carry on a conversation while wearing the device. In an effort to offset the isolating nature of listening to music on headphones, he ordered the head engineer to add the second headphone jack and a bright orange button, dubbed the hotline, that would mute the music and allow tandem users to talk to each other via a microphone hidden in the housing, one of the few components remaining from the device's origin as a recorder for journalists. Hinting at romantic possibilities, Kuroki playfully labeled the twin headphone jacks Guys and Dolls on the very first production run, a joke that was quickly dropped in favor of a more straightforward A and B. But a bigger concern remained. Would it sell? Much as he loved the TPS-L2 personally, Morita agonized over the budget and details, calling in the heads of various departments to give him their takes on how many units they might move. Nobody had a clue. 
no company had ever released a product like this before. Reluctantly, Morita ordered Kuroki to convene a focus group. This was extraordinary. Morita deeply mistrusted customer surveys, and Sony prided itself on never consulting consumers in developing new products. The public does not know what is possible, he wrote in his memoirs. We do. Yet here, for once, Morita cast his lot with the public. Five prototypes were loaded up with tapes of recent hits and shown to groups ranging in age from middle schoolers to college students. As a hundred of these testers cycled through headquarters over the course of the next ten days, Kuroki noticed two things. One was that the young men and women responded to the device instinctively, knowing what to do with it, even without having been given instructions of any kind. The other was that at least one in five quickly lost themselves in the music, bobbing their heads and tapping their feet. It wasn't much to go on, but it seemed promising anyway. Kuroki worked up a sales estimate based on the number of students in Japan at the time. He figured, conservatively, that they could sell 60,000 Walkmans before the novelty faded. But it turned out the factory couldn't possibly produce that many in time. Morita decreed that the first run would be just 30,000. It was a testament to how little expectation surrounded the product. By comparison, the first run of the old TR-63 transistor radio way back in 57 had been 100,000 units. The most popular products, such as the Trinitron TV series, had annual production runs in the millions. Kuroki suggested naming the gadget the Hotline, after the functionality that allowed one user to talk with the other. Toru Kono, head of the promotional team, immediately pushed back. That's a function, not a product name, he argued. Let's call it Walkie. The team even worked up a logo, with the A sprouting little walking feet. Then they learned Toshiba had already copyrighted the word. Kono really didn't want to abandon it, so he fused Pressman with Walkie to make Walkman. It was the first portable stereo of its kind, so I knew the product would be hard to understand, he told me over coffee in downtown Tokyo. I wanted a name that would teach customers what it was. Morita was cool on the idea, but didn't have anything better. Walkman, it would be. A gala release event, thrown for the press in Tokyo's iconic Yoyogi Park, generated approximately zero headlines. An oddball advertising campaign, centering on a spandex-clad Caucasian blonde, leading a Japanese geezer around by the headphone wire, failed to stir the nation's passions, or at least their electronic ones. There was no grand plan, just an attempt to dazzle as best they could with limited resources. We weren't given the budget to do much else, Kono said, sighing. For a product that would so profoundly transform the way we listen, the Walkman's debut in July of 1979 was heralded by near-total silence. 
Of course, what followed was anything but total silence, and the launch of the Walkman went on to change how we listen to music forever. More on that in chapter 5 of Matt's book, Pure Invention. And that was, in fact, Matt Old reading an excerpt from Pure Invention, How Japan's Pop Culture Conquered the World, courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio. If you'd like to hear the full audiobook or get your hands on a copy that you can read with your own eyes, head to Matt's website, www.mattalt.com. A link is in the episode notes. We'll be back next week with a new episode looking at the wonderful world of Japan's favourite culinary mould and why it's better than sourdough. Until then, though, thanks as always for listening. I'm Podskado Summer. Thank you.